Shavua Tov, Akutavach. I wish all of you a blessed week. Thank you for joining this evening. I know it's late at night. Tonight is the Yartse Tilula of the Rebbe. And by one could call almost direct instruction, it seems that this would be the thing the Rebbe would want us to do on the Yom Hailula, on the day we commemorate his terrestrial passing and the soaring of the Neshama to the highest of heights in a manner that directly impacts all of us living in the most terrestrial, mundane, and it seems concealed earthly reality. This is the last mimer that the Rebbe edited. The Rebbe personally distributed a copy to everybody who was present. There's much to be said about this mimer, this Hasidic discourse. I think that if you will stay with me, if you will open your heart, your mind, and your soul to the message of this mimer, you will see that the Rebbe is giving us marching orders that he's pointing the way and laying out the strategy for us to get through the final dark days of Golos and Amir Hashem very speedily, hopefully today, to welcome Mashiach. So let us begin to study. During the course of Gimel Tamas, I will incrementally continue to teach this mimer. I don't know how many increments it's going to take, but Belineder, the commitment is to actually get through the entirety of the Mimer. And I hope that you'll join us as often or whenever possible. The Mimer was delivered on the holy day of Shabbat. It was Parsha Tetzava. On the Hebrew or Jewish calendar, it was the 10th day of the first Adar, it was a leap year. And the year was Tafshin Mem Aleph, 5741, which corresponds to the Gregorian year of 1981. The Mimer bases itself, like so many Hasidic discourses, on a verse, on a Pasuk of the Torah. We begin with a charitable analysis by precisely looking at the verse, several anomalies seem to come to the surface. The gist of the opening part of this Mimer and in some ways, the continued structure of the Mimer is based on and is an elucidation of a very famous Hasidic discourse that was delivered by our Rebbe's predecessor, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, on Purim Katan, on the minor Purim of the year 1927. Let us begin to study together. The Pasuk which opens the Torah portion called Titzaveh, and you shall command. It's a Torah portion that describes the details of the raiments or the outfits of the Kohanim and the various services that inaugurate or will bring the Kohanim into their special mission and will prepare ultimately the Mishkan to become the repository for the divine presence here in our realm as it was for the Jewish people during the first decades of our nation's existence. 
So the Pasuk reads as follows. God is speaking to Moshe Rabbeinu. And he says, And you, Moses, will command the Jewish people, they will bring to you Shemen Zayit Zach, the purest of olive oil, an olive oil that is devoid of sediment, which means that these olives were not first crushed fully or pulverized and then filled with sediment. The oil emerged, but rather the oils were pressed in a very, very clean way. And the purest of olive oil would emerge, and that olive oil should be brought to you, to Moshe. This olive oil must be katit, crushed, but not in a typical way. This is not the kind of olive oil that you'll buy in the store. That's olive oil that sees the bulk of the olive entirely pulverized and crushed, and much of it liquefied, turning into oil. This is katit, it's crushed, but it's for the purpose of lama'or, so that it will serve as a source of illumination. We are referring to the oil that will be used in the golden candelabra, the menorah of the Mishkan and Beit HaMikdash. And there is a unique way that this oil has to be made, sediment-free, and it is the purpose of this oil, which is crushed in a unique fashion, for the purpose of illumination, is laha'alot ner tamid, so that it can bring forth or allow for the bringing up of a ner tamid, of an eternal or continuous flame. That's the pasuk. That's the verse. The Rebbe says it's well known amongst those who study Hasidic writings. The precise analysis or the seeming anomalies that are pointed out. Examples of this can be found in the Maimorim of the Tzemach Tzedek in Eir HaTayra on Parshas Tetzave. You can find similar examples in the Maimor that I mentioned earlier. The Maimor that this Maimor is very closely related to. The Maimor V'Kibbal HaYehudim which is a pasuk, a verse from the scroll of Esther, Megillat Esther, that was delivered by the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, in the year 1927, in the third chapter. And there is also a mimer later on from the Friedrich Rebbe, in which we'll find the same diyukim. In other words, these are not, this is not new analysis. These are not bringing forth any new anomalies, not discover anything different, but rather to follow along the well-trodden path of Hasidic teaching. And the first diuk, the first precise analysis of this verse, is, points out not a grammatical anomaly, but a factual anomaly, a, an anomaly from a, a perspective of content and meaning. The Bechol HaTzivuyim Shebetayra, when it comes to commandments in the Torah, instructions in the Torah, <laughs> They're not suggestions. God gives commandments. He tells us what He expects us to do. God does not force us to perform His mitzvot. If He would force us, we wouldn't get, so to speak, credit for doing it. We wouldn't be considered righteous. We would be considered coerced. 
So God gives us the freedom to choose, but they're not electives. They're commandments, they're obligations, they're duties, things that are mandatory for a Jew to do, to perform. So with regard to these tzivuyim and Torah, Neymar, we find in the scripture that it's framed as something that must be conveyed by Moses to the Jewish people from God. For example, tzav et b'nei Yisrael, instruct or command the children of Israel, the Jewish people, and many things like this. But here, instead of saying, and you should tell the Jewish people what I, God, commands, here it says, you should command or you should instruct, as if this were the mitzvah of Moshe Rabbeinu. Here the Rebbe adds something, something that isn't seen in the previous discourses that I mentioned. That the seeming anomaly that's being pointed out here is not merely a grammatic anomaly. It's loyrak bahaloshan, legam bahatoichen. On a contentful level, something odd is being conveyed. Why? I mean, it's an unusual verbiage, but we know it's God's mitzvahs. Well, the Rebbe says, let's think about this. The syntax of, and you, referring to Moses, should instruct. Mashma intimates, God didn't say, I'm commanding the Jewish people to do something, and you, Moshe, must be my messenger. You will convey my commandments to the Jewish people. Instead, as if God is telling Moses, I want you to be the commander. I want you to be the one giving the instructions. You will command. Which is actually not correct. It's not Moses' mitzvah. It's God's mitzvah. But the language seems to intimate that God wanted Moses to give a mitzvah. God wanted Moses to give us a commandment. And the Rebbe says, that's very, very strange. That seems not to fit into our understanding of mitzvot and Moses' mission. Moses is but a messenger. We don't worship Moses, ever. We worship God. Moses serves as God's messenger to the Jewish people. He serves as, if you will, the function to convey what God said to us. He's telling the Jewish people what God wants from them because with the exception of two mitzvot given to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, the other 611 were given to us through Moshe. As is explained in many other places, the idea of Torah tzivolonu Moshe, Moshe commanded us with mitzvah. The word Torah has the numeric equivalent of 611. There are 611 of the 613 which came to us through Moses. Only two came to us through God. So, if Moses is God's messenger, then why would we choose this very unusual expression, and you, you Moses, should be the one 
to instruct or command. So that's the first anomaly. It's an anomaly that has been pointed out in prior generations from a syntaxual or grammatical perspective, an unusual syntax. The Rebbe points out that on, a, on, a, on the level of its meaning, these words seem to belie the true meaning that's being essentially played out. And that's strange. Because the Torah is very sparing in its words. It uses precious few characters to communicate enormous messages of importance. Why would the Torah communicate something which could be understood as inaccurate or even wrong? Somebody might make the mistake of thinking, oh, look at that. 612 mitzvahs, they came from God. One of them got to be Moses' mitzvah. God's idea, Moses' command. That's wrong. But the language that the Torah uses actually lends itself to that misinterpretation. For heaven's sake, why would that be the case? Now the premise is, <laughs> there's got to be a very good reason. Or there's multiple messages that are being conveyed. And the only way the additional messages could be conveyed was to use this seeming anomaly or strange and unusual kind of syntax. Let's move on in our analysis of this verse. There's something else we need to understand. This is not about the grammar altogether. <laughs> this is just, why are they bringing the oil to Moses? It says, which means, take to you. They bring the oil to Moshe. To you. Ostensibly. Since the, glam, the lamps of the menorah are being lit, not by Moshe, but by Aaron, what will he do with the oil? It's like creating red tape here. You're going to bring the oil to Moses, and Moses will give it to Aaron. So have the Jewish people deliver the olive oil directly to Aaron Akoin. Why put Moshe Rabbeinu in between? What exactly is the point of bringing the oil to Moshe Rabbeinu? We could do this straightforward. The red tape is entirely unnecessary. And this, this, this commandment, which is part of the Torah, seems to be superfluous. Something else we have to understand. Mashakosov Shemen, it says that this is olive oil, the purest of olive oil, and it's katit lamaor, it's crushed for the purpose of illumination. Here we go, ostensibly, if we think about this in a straightforward fashion, it should have said, crushed not for the purpose of being a source of illumination, but rather so that the menorah will illuminate or radiate. In other words, a luminary's or a source of a luminary's function is to shed its effulgence or rays of light. So when you light the candle, you didn't light the candle to create the candle, you lit the candle to create the radiance the rays, the effulgence that would come from the candle. The olive oil wasn't made to create the source of light. <laughs> A source of light was made to create light. Well, then we should have said that. Why focus or emphasize the ma'or, the source of light, when in fact 
we should have been emphasizing the lahair, the verb of shedding light. A final analysis or pointing out of seeming anomalies in this pasuk. Gam tzaruch lahavin. The bepasuk shala achareze in the very next verse. Nehemar it says that the menorah's lamp or the, 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 the lanterns or lamps of the menorah have to burn me'erev from the evening at boker until day breaks. Now, I know what you're thinking. Not every night is equally long. That's true. Rashi tells us, quoting our sages, that it would have to be long enough to burn through the longest night, those long winter nights. So, indeed, in the summer, day would break early and the menorah was still burning. But as long as it could last the entirety of the longest night, you'd know that Me'erev Ad Boker, from when the sky begins to darkle, from when the time that the sun begins its final descent, a menorah will be lit, and when day will break, the menorah will still be burning. That's practical. Now we know what to do. We've got to figure out how much oil it takes and how big a flame would be needed for a lamp to continue burning all night long. <laughs> We're not very good at this these days. But once upon a time, people kind of relied on things like this. If you needed to have light for a certain amount of time, you needed to know how much oil or how long would that lamp burn for. So it makes sense when the Torah says, that this flame should be burning from evening to morning. Practical instruction. But Vikan here, Nemar Lahala is near Tamid. It's gonna be eternal. It's gonna be continuous. Well, not really. Okay, it's gonna be continuous. You're gonna do it every day. I understand. But why wouldn't you just say that it will be burning every evening until morning? After all, mitzvahs are practical. Clearly, there's something the Torah is trying to communicate. The question, of course, in this mimer is, what? And the emphasis here is on Hasidic teaching, on the soul of Torah. What mystical messaging is being conveyed to us through this unusually constructed verse so that you can have many, many subtexts scrolled into its folds? In the second chapter of the Mimer, the Rebbe says, My father-in-law, His Holiness, my father-in-law, the Rebbe. In the Mimer, the well-known Mimer, the famous Mimer, which was delivered in, 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 in the Soviet Union, on the Minor Purim of the year 1927. This is a famous Mimer because there were many, many KGB informants who were present at uh, the delivery of this Mimer in Moscow. And he was warned, the Friedrich Rebbe was warned very carefully that there would be many eyes watching and many ears listening and everything would be recorded. And what he would say would be held against him. And he was reminded that it was illegal to promote religion in the Soviet Union. The Friedrich Rebbe delivered a very strident Hasidic discourse on that particular evening. And it is said that as a result of that discourse that the KGB came to the final conclusion that they would have to arrest and eliminate the Friedrich Rebbe. And of course, Hashem had other plans. That's the miracle of Yud-Based Tamas. But at any rate, 
In no likelihood, that's why it says That's why it's called a famous Mimer. So in the Mimer, the Friedrich Rebbe explains that the word tzivui, that the notion of commandment, which is titzaveh, you shall command, is actually more than just a commandment. But rather, it also reflects this ideal of a mitzvah as a mechanism for connection. It's a, a nexus of sorts. The mitzvah is a tzavtzav v'chibur. The mitzvah is the vehicle through which relationship is nurtured and developed. We, Am Yisrael, are poised, selected by Hashem, to enter into this very meaningful, very profound relationship with Hashem. And it comes when we listen to Hashem's commandments and perform His mitzvahs. So, of course, a mitzvah is a commandment. But it's much more than just an instruction or a commandment. It's an opportunity for us to develop a relationship with Hashem. Vizehu, this then is the deeper message. And you should command. Yes, quite literally. Of course, it's not the mitzvah of Moses. It's the function of Moses. Moses, like a mitzvah, becomes the vehicle through which we, the Jewish people, become connected to Hashem. Moshe Rabbeinu, simply by serving in the function that Hashem had chosen for him, was able to connect, to nurture and bring out the innate connection that every one of us, Am Yisrael, has with with the inf infinite light of God. And we're finite creatures. Infinity and infinity are a strange match. In fact, the twain shall never meet. Logically or realistically speaking, how is it that finite beings would have a relationship with an infinite creator? Well, the creator allowed for us to have a relationship with him. He gave us mitzvahs, not because he needs mitzvahs, we need mitzvahs. He also gave us Moshe Rabbeinu. Because of who Moshe Rabbeinu was, he was able to bring forth the latent potential that every one of us has to experience a meaningful and profound relationship with the infinite creator. By virtue, a dint to the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu serves as a source of sustenance through the fact that he provides for Bnei Yisrael, namely, what Moshe Rabbeinu provides us with is spiritual sustenance. What he provides us with is the opportunity for us to appreciate and enjoy and experience a relationship with the Creator, with the infinite Creator. And when Moshe Rabbeinu does his job, So, one could suggest or think that Moshe Rabbeinu's got a job to do. Hashem gave him a duty. His mission, his mandate, to connect us with Hashem. Who benefits? We do. We the nation. Yes, indeed. Of course we do. But Moshe Rabbeinu benefits too. Because 
by virtue of the fact that he successfully enables us to be connected by Hashem, Moshe Rabbeinu is elevated. His own spiritual relationship with Hashem is enhanced. The Moshe of Yisrael, the Rebbe adds in the brackets here, that Moshe and Yisrael are dugmas reish v'regel. There's this paradigm that's talked about by the medieval sages of Israel. They describe the entirety of the nation as being one body, if you will. And the Alter Rebbe in the second chapter of Tanya explains that the meaning of Am Yisrael serving as one body includes within it the notion that there are more important parts, that there are souls that are more refined, more sensitive, holier, if you will, through the process of the gestation of development of the neshama, which parallels the gestation of the single cell at the time of conception, the single cell that's able to become everything from brain matter to toenail, all encoded with the same DNA. All souls begin from the same source within divinity, but as the process of gestation continues, some of us end up occupying or our cells in the toenails, in the heel, in the legs. And then there's the Rashi Bnei Yisrael. There's the Moshe Rabbeinu, the brain. So Moshe Rabbeinu's relationship with the Jewish people is then framed in this kind of symbiotic connection between head and between feet. Kosov, like it says, and this goes, back, goes uh, forward to Parshat Bahalotcha, interestingly enough, which is also about the menorah. There, Moshe Rabbeinu speaks about the nation of Israel, who at the time was clamoring, where's the beef? They were not happy. They wanted all kinds of things, material things. Moshe Rabbeinu was here to teach them Torah and elevate their neshama. And they're like, yeah, can I have a sandwich? <laughs> we want steak. So Moshe Rabbeinu was extremely frustrated at the time. He says, my only busser, who, who am I? Like, I? I'm not a caterer. <laughs> they want meat. They need material things. Let somebody else be the one to be the purveyor of materialism. And Shem says, no, 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 that's not the way it works. You, Moshe, are the brain. The brain has got to take care of the body, every part of the body. The happiness of the person is in the mind, the spiritual satisfaction of the person, and so is the bodily function from digestion to waste removal. It's all coming from the brain. Kameshakosov, so it says, Sheish Meis Elif Ragli Ha'om. Six hundred thousand sets of feet, meaning proverbially speaking, the nation. that I am amongst them. The Chol Yisrael, the deeper meaning here is that all of Israel, not like in the metaphor of Perigbez and Tanya, where different parts of the nation or different souls amongst the nation occupy different body parts. But here we see this metaphor as body as being simple, head and feet. Moshe is the head, and Yisrael are reglaim the Moshe. And Moshe is the reishalahem. So, the chol Yisrael him reglaim the Moshe, Moshe are reishalahem. They are his feet, and he is his head. Ukemoshe ba'adam, just as it is with an actual person, a terrestrial person. Haraglayim, melichim, esareish. The feet provide mobility. They can, so to speak, bring the head, lamakim shaharish mitzadatsmei, into a place where the head, left to its own devices, 
wouldn't be able to reach there. A person can have a brilliant mind. A person can have an active mind. A person can have an extremely powerful mind. If he doesn't have legs that work, he's not going to be able to take himself or get himself somewhere. So he can do all kinds of things with his beautiful mind, but mobility is not one of them. So it is also with Moshe, with Moses, the Yisrael and Israel. By virtue of, by dint of the fact that Yisrael, who are in the metaphor, Raglayim, the feet of Moshe, what do the feet contribute to the head? <laughs> do they stimulate brain activity? No. Do they add something in consciousness? Of course not. But what the feet do is mobility. And when you need to move, you need a good le- set of legs, not a powerful brain. So there's an Eloi, there's a virtue that's given to Moshe Rabbeinu through the feet. The Zeo Masha Kosov, this is the meaning of Sheish Meis Elef Ragli Ha'om Asher Anoichi Bekirboi. This is why Moshe Rabbeinu uses that kind of terminology. The number 600,000, okay. So say heads, 600,000 heads. Why 600,000 feet? We usually say a head count, not a feet count. There's, there's a deeper message here. Shal Yadei Ragli Ha'om. That is by virtue or dint of the feet of the nation. Nimshach HaGilui Da'anoichi. Bekir Be'ishol Meishar. Meishar said, Sheish Meis Ragli Ha'om. Asher Anoichi Bekir Literally means, which I am amongst them. Here, the Rebbe is translating that or elucidating it as, or annotating it as, Asher Anoichi, that the Anoichi, which is the way Hashem introduced Himself to the Jewish people, it represents a very sublime and profound essence of divinity. I, Anoichi. So Anoichi is Bekir Boi, within Moshe. In other words, that the feet, or the nation, by virtue of just being who they're supposed to be, receiving the messages and responding in kind that adds something to Moshe Rabbeinu himself. It gives him a gilui. It gives him a, proverbially speaking, a revelation of Anoichi. It enables him to maybe relive Mount Sinai all over again or whatever that means, whatever the gilui of Anoichi means. It's something very big, very special. And it comes to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses, by virtue of the people he ministers to. The Zehu, my dear friends. And so now we can come back to the verse. This is the meaning of Va'ata Tetzavah B'nai Yisrael, the deeper, mystical, spiritual message being played out f- with this verse. And you shall command the Jewish people really means you shall connect. You shall nurture a relationship with God and the Jewish people. And when you do that, they'll contribute something to you. You, Moses, you, Moshe Rabbeinu, you contribute the possibility for them to experience that relationship. And they contribute the possibility for you to experience this notion of Shemin Zayat, which is a source of light and illumination. By virtue of the fact that Moshe commands 
or really as we understand it now, connects via kasher. He bonds B'nai Yisrael Al by dint of all this, the result of this activity is Yaviu B'nai Yisrael Shemen Zayat. The Jewish people, the nation of Israel, brings Moses. They bring olive oil, the Moshe. Lecha. Olive oil is the fuel that enables light, that enables the fire to burn. In other words, it's a euphemism. They add a new brightness, a new radiance to the spiritual light of Moshe Rabbeinu. This is the opening of the Maimir Va'ata Tetzava. And the Rebbe will now begin to analyze the deeper meaning of this remarkable spiritual message. I want to invite you to keep joining during the course of the next day, beginning tomorrow morning, I'll be teaching incrementally portions of this Mimer. And together, we can learn the Mimer, the Rebbe's special Torah. It will unite us. It will bring forth and fortify and nurture our own faith. And let's hope that our Torah study on this holy day will accelerate the process of universal redemption with the coming of Mashiach speedily in our time today. A good night, Laila Tov, good night, and thank you. I look forward to seeing you in the morning.